Well, last week I put a challenge before you, the challenge to dig deeper and grow stronger. It's a very serious challenge. I pray that it's a challenge that you will take to heart and that you will be uh, men and women and boys and girls of the Word of God and you will um, really put your hand to the plow and, and make an effort by the Spirit of God's help to dig deeper and to grow stronger. It's in light of that challenge that I want to invite you to turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. It was a few years ago that my family had the opportunity to spend a few days in Southern California. And one of those days, we had the chance to go to Universal Studios. If you have ever had the opportunity to go to Universal Studios, you will know that this theme park is filled with crazy rides, amusement park rides. I remember stepping into one of these rides, a a ride where you would sit in this contraption and they would buckle you in and the ride would begin slowly and innocently. But soon before I knew what was happening, we were being thrown every which way, upside down and all around. And and, uh, by the time we got done with the ride, I got out and was something like this and I remember... My son Nathan said to me, Dad, can we go on the next ride? And I think I said something like, and who are you again? I, I couldn't even figure out who I was and where I was going. I was disoriented. I didn't know what was happening. And so once I came out of that uh, state, I was ready to ride the next ride. As we near the end of Romans chapter 3, I certainly don't want you to feel like I felt that day as we exited the ride at Universal Studios. I want to reorient your attention to Paul's argument and reacclimate you to the content and the context of this letter. It has been almost a month since we were in the book of Romans. I believe there is a Christmas message and then Pete Williamson preached and then I, I gave the 2020 challenge last year. And so now we come back to uh, the book of Romans. I think the best way to capture your attention and get you up to speed is to begin by simply reading this text together. So I invite you to stand as we read together beginning in Romans chapter 3 verse 21. This is God's word. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to dive back into this book. But I thank you for each person here in this sanctuary. I thank you for those who have uh, 
taken the challenge to dig deeper and to grow stronger. And we recognize that it is only through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit that we can even desire such a task, let alone accomplish it. And so we look forward to uh, the coming year. We look forward to uh, these next few minutes as we as we uh, open up the word of God and see what you have for us. May your spirit apply these important words to our heart today in Jesus name. Amen. If you are a guest at Christ Fellowship this morning, I should tell you that we have already spent two weeks studying uh, these verses, most notably verses 21 and 22. We're obviously going slowly. I should also tell you that here at Christ Fellowship, we take the Word of God very seriously. We believe that all Scripture is breathed out by God. As Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, that it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. I would argue that these verses in Romans chapter 3, 21 to 26, contain some of the most powerful, soul-shaping, heart-transforming words that you will ever lay your eyes upon. And so that is the reason that we are going extra slow through this section of Scripture. It's not that I was feeling bad, not that I was questioning our approach, but it was encouraging when I read in one of my commentaries by Martin Lloyd-Jones that he took the same approach when he preached through the book of Romans, and he argued as well that these are some of the most powerful words in all of sacred Scripture. The title of the message this morning is The Greatest and Most Gracious Gift. And I want to review just a moment uh, for you as re- we reorient and reacclimate ourselves to this section of Scripture. If you remember in verse 21, Paul tells the, the Roman believers and also each one of us that our greatest need is the righteousness of God. He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. One of the things that we see over and over again in Scripture is this reality. God is righteous and we are not. God is righteous and we are not. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 4 says, The rock, his work is perfect. All his ways are justice or righteous. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Or the psalmist says in Psalm 145, The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The psalmist continues, Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. We also learn that the righteousness of God, as verse 21 says, has been Revealed. That word revealed means to make known, to, to clearly reveal something. And we learned several weeks ago that this, of course, is good news for sinners. It's good news for sinners because we are unrighteous. We as sinners need the righteousness of God. And so as we think of this fundamental reality that God is righteous and we are not, we want to fire four critical questions at these particular verses. The first two questions we have already dealt with. Let me give them to you by way of review. Number one, how do we receive 
the righteousness of God. The answer to that question is all important. And the answer is that we receive the righteousness of God by faith and faith alone. By faith and faith alone. There is simply no way to overemphasize this reality. I mentioned this in class this morning. The doctrine of justification by faith alone that we will return to this morning is simply a doctrine that cannot be overemphasized enough. It was Martin Luther who said that justification is the article upon which the church stands or falls. You get justification wrong, you fall as a church. You get justification wrong, you fail as a church. You get justification wrong, you lose your soul. And you will spend all eternity being judged by a holy God. It was John Calvin who said that justification is the main hinge on which religion turns. Complimenting Luther's quote. And then it was the late R.C. Sproul who said that faith is the instrument by which we are linked to Christ and receive the grace of justification. Question number two. Who then can receive the righteousness of God. And this is a, a, a very important question to deal with as well. Verse 22 gives the answer. We learn that it is an invitation for all peoples. It is an invitation for all peoples. Isaiah 55 1 says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the water. And he who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. And The key lesson we learned here that I want to remind you of is that we are not only invited to come and receive the gospel, we are commanded to come and receive the gospel. The third question is the question that we will focus our attention exclusively on this morning, and that is, on what basis can we receive the righteousness of God. The fourth question we will look at, Lord willing, next week. By what means can we receive the righteousness of God? And so we want to consider the question that is third in the list. On what basis can we receive the righteousness of God? Understanding the correct answer. And may I say that there is a correct answer to this question. And there is only one correct answer to this question. Understanding the answer will have profound impact on your life. It will affect your goals. It will affect your approach to parenting. It will affect your approach to how you live the Christian life. It will affect your marriage. Men, it will affect the way you lead your wives. Women, it will affect the way you submit to the authority of your husband. There's a countercultural statement that men lead their families. Men lead their wives and women by God's design submit to or tuck under the authority of their husbands. And if you're a woman this morning and you are doing that, you will be the first to say you find great delight in doing so because that is how God wired you. That is how God created you. Understanding the answer to this question will affect your overall relationships. It will help you to understand God and what it means to walk faithfully with him and before him. And so on what basis can we receive the righteousness of God? The answer I would propose is found in a carefully reasoned argument that I want you to think through with me. I believe we have a chart I want to show you on the screen to help you to unfold this. 
as we sum up Paul's argument. Let's look at it together. Number one, there is what we refer to as the greatest need. That's what we discovered in verse 21. The greatest need, our greatest need, the greatest need of every person who's ever existed or will exist is the righteousness of God. We've seen that. Secondly, we'll begin here today is what is the greatest barricade to receiving the righteousness of God? And then we'll conclude by looking at the greatest gift that we can ever receive, ever receive. Notice, first of all, the greatest barricade, the greatest barricade. And this is where we refer to our deadly nemesis. Whenever someone refers to the deadly nemesis, that should cause you to sit up. If you're dozing off this morning, you should say, deadly nemesis? Who's our deadly nemesis? What is our deadly nemesis? Romans chapter 3 verse 23 helps to reveal what the deadly nemesis of every person is. Read it with me. And for many of you, you know this like the back of your hand. You learn this when you were seven years old and rightly so. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I would argue this morning that Romans chapter 3 verse 23 may be the second most known and cited Bible verse that's ever been recited outside of John 3:16. This verse may be the most one of the most well-known and least understood verses in all of Romans and perhaps in all of Scripture. Why? This verse rolls off the lips of well-meaning people. But the weightiness of this passage is rarely pondered with seriousness and deep consideration. You will hear a child who is given a prize for saying, For all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, there's your candy bar, little boy. For all sin and fallen short of the glory of God, there's your prize, little girl. And sometimes we refuse or fall short of pondering the deep message of this verse. And so I want to do that with you this morning as we consider our deadly nemesis. And we need to go back to creation in order to do this. When God created all things, he had a specific motive in mind. There's a song that I refer to often, and Jason Scheib usually gets mentioned in this sentence. And Jason, I, I did not share this with Jason. He already knows what song I'm referring to right now before I even say anything. And it's the line in the song. It was a super popular song for many, many years. And many of you have heard it. It's the line that goes something like this. Like a rose trampled on the ground, you took the fall and thought of me above all. Nothing could be more untrue. Than that line in that song. When Jesus dies upon a wooden Christ. He does not think of me above all. He does not think of you above all. He thinks of the glory of God above all. So when God created all things. He does so with a specific aim. Isaiah chapter 43. I want to have you look at it with me. Hold your finger in Romans chapter 3. And go into the Old Testament to Isaiah chapter 43. While you're turning there, I want to share a story about a a youth pastor friend of mine many, many years ago. As he had a young man who grew up in his youth ministry, he ended up going to college. And after a few years in college, he came back and he met with his youth pastor. And his youth pastor said to him, he said, 
I need to ask you, he said, if I could change anything about the ministry, any, any of our, uh, the things that we emphasized or taught, would you suggest that we do anything different? And he had no idea what this young man was going to say. And without, without even thinking about it, the young man said, yeah, one thing. More Old Testament, dude. I'll never forget that. More Old Testament, dude. Yet we have pastors, most notably Andy Stanley, who a few years ago said that it's time for evangelicals to unhitch themselves from the Old Testament. (laughs) What, is the Old Testament not relevant? No, the Old Testament is as relevant as it has always been. And so we want to spend time in the Old Testament. Isaiah 43, verse 7. Notice the purpose for God creating all things. Everyone who is called by my name. Those of you who were in Veritas this morning, this verse will have special meaning for you. Everyone who is called by my name. That's a a, a word that designates intimacy and sovereignty and effectiveness. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created. Why? For my glory, whom I formed and made. Numbers chapter 14, verse 21 says, But as truly as I live and all the earth shall be filled with the glory of God. And so God creates all things. He creates all of us so that we would glorify him, the great God of the universe. And his end goal, his end game is that the the cosmos should be filled with the glory of God. That word glory comes from the Greek word doxa. Doxa. And it means the manifest presentation of God's infinite and majestic nature. It is a word that is associated with with brightness. With intense brightness or heaviness. The word splendor. The word shining. The word radiance. All is consistent with this word doxa or glory. Acts chapter 22, Paul says, And since I could not see because of the brightness or the doxa of that light, I was led by the hand of those who were with me and came into Damascus. Or Revelation 15, 8. The writer says, The sanctuary was filled with smoke from the doxa of God, from the glory of God, and from his power. No one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. I want to suggest to you this morning that the entry point for the gospel that I learned growing up is not God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. How many of you learned that that was the place to begin the presentation of the gospel? If you know anything about the four spiritual laws, I guess I'm the only one. Oh, there's a few. I don't believe that's the place to begin. That God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. The place to begin is right here. God created you so that you will glorify him. John Piper helps us here. He says, God made us to magnify his greatness. I'll stop. Are are you this morning, are you committed to, to magnifying his greatness? The greatness of God. Piper continues. He says the way that telescopes magnify the stars. 
He created us to put his goodness and truth and beauty and wisdom and justice on display. That is to say, if you're a basketball player, your aim is not first and foremost to win the game. As great as winning is, how many of you hate to lose? Yeah, me too. But winning is not the primary objective of the Christian basketball player. The primary objective of the Christian basketball player is to glorify the living God. As a follower of Jesus, Russell Wilson, as he plays his game today, his first and foremost goal is to glorify God on the football field. Tyler Lockett, as a card-carrying follower of Jesus, his primary objective is to glorify his Savior. Now, if we win, all the better. But the primary objective is that we glorify God. Piper continues, the greatest display of God's glory comes from deep delight in all that he is. This means that God gets the praise and we get the pleasure. Did you pick up on that? That God gets the praise and we get the pleasure. So when we glorify God, to put it in very simple terms, we feel great. This is a good thing. This is a godly thing. And Piper concludes, God created us so that he is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. It is critical that we begin by tattooing this great reality on our hearts. It is impossible to overemphasize this as well as a great reality in the Christian life. And so I urge you to meditate upon it, to think carefully about the ramifications that God created you and I for his glory. You remember first Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. Now, I want you to see two things in verse 23 that emerge. And these are simple things, but powerful as well. Number one, we see it on the screen already. All people have sinned. Verse 23, Paul says, for for all have sinned. I'd encourage you to circle that word all or highlight the word all. It means everyone counted individually. There are no exceptions. There are no exclusions. There are no escape hatches. No one gets off the hook. Rich people don't get off the hook. Poor people don't get off the hook. People who are disabled don't get off the hook. No one gets off the hook. We are all born as sinners. That word sin simply means to to miss the mark. To miss the mark. There is a, a catechism. And I would argue that many evangelicals, especially conservative evangelicals and even Baptists, that over the years that we have somehow moved away from the discipline of catechizing our children. And I think it's time to come back to that discipline. So if you have children, especially young children, there is a a catechism that was published just two years ago through Crossway Books in Wheaton, Illinois, um, entitled The New City Catechism. I actually read the whole thing in one sitting a few days ago, and it's it's a rather short book, but a powerful book. Here is what the catechism says about sin. And these are the kind of things that our children need to, to learn and even memorize. Sin, it says, is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created. 
rebelling against him, living without reference to him, not being or doing what he requires in his law, resulting in our death and the disintegration of all creation. Can you imagine learning that as a nine-year-old? That's a powerful definition of sin. It's important that we move from the definition from sin and then wrestle with the devastating implications of sin. And so here it goes. Every sinner suffers from shame. And you've heard it said, especially in our postmodern world, that no one should feel shame. Nothing could be further from the truth. We need to feel shame. We need to experience shame. Why? Because we are sinners. And what the sinner learns is when you experience shame, you turn your attention to the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only for relief from that shame, but forgiveness and for eternal life. Additionally, every sinner experiences intense guilt. I heard one psychologist who said years ago that one of the greatest problems in America is unresolved guilt. I actually agree with that. There is unresolved guilt with people. Why? Because they're sinners. Every sinner is an enemy of God, Paul says in Romans 5.10. Every sinner is separated from God. Every sinner is under the almighty wrath of God. Every sinner faces spiritual death. And every sinner faces physical death as well. Ezekiel chapter 18 verse 4 says it in plain terms. The soul who sins shall die. And so all people have sinned. And then there is... Something that is implied also in verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The implication is that not only we have all sinned, but we all have fallen short of God's glory. We have all fallen short of God's glory. To fall short means to be in need. To fall short means to be destitute. To fall short means to, to lack an advantage or lack a benefit. To fall short means to be inferior. It means to be in a state of low status, to fail to attain something. And isn't that exactly what Paul says? That we who have sinned, we who are categorized as sinners, we have fallen short of the glory of God. This is what I fear we gloss over when we recite the verse for all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. You see what happens? We just, we just blaze right by it. And so we consider what it means to fall short of the glory of God. We remember the reason that God created us was to what? To glorify him. And so instead of glorifying God, we fall short of his glory. Instead of rejoicing in God, we repudiate God. Instead of reveling in God, we rebel against God. Instead of relying on God, we run from God. Instead of praising God, we profane God. Instead of calling out to God, we curse God. OMG. Amen to that. OMG. Do you know that something has happened in the Christian subculture? And those of you on social media, any kind of social media, you see it all the time from followers of Jesus Christ. OMG. Can I, can I just say, along with Star, um, let's stop doing that. Because we all know what it means. So let's stop doing it. Let, let's change it to 
OMW. Why does no one say OMW? Getting a lot of strange looks. Oh my word. Big deal. OMW. There, we invented a new word. You heard it right here at Christ Fellowship. OMW. It accomplishes something similar, does it not? But it doesn't take God's name in vain. Instead of calling out to God, we curse God. Instead of delighting in God, we despise God. I can't think of anything more horrifying and more frightening than a creature who is made in the image of God, who is, choose, who is chosen willingly to run from God, to repudiate God, to curse God, to profane God, to despise God. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I read a book probably 20 years ago and You'll read a book and you'll remember a line from that book. And it's so marked. And it's probably a book about 300 pages. And every time I pull it off the shelf, if I look for this quote, I lit, it just opens right to the quote. It, it's that meaningful. And here's what this author says. He says, we should understand that our total depravity, isn't that what verse 23 is about? That our total depravity primarily consists in heaping the greatest insult upon God by refusing to regard him as trustworthy. If you want to know what is the essence of sin, this is it. Is I refuse to regard him as trustworthy. He goes on. This unbelieving attitude toward God also renders great injury to other people. Let me stop there. So what this writer is saying is that if, if I commit a sin knowingly, is I'm refusing to trust the living God. And when I refuse to trust the living God, I heap a great insult on him. By the way, young people. When mom or dad have a standard for you and they tell you, I want you to do this, I don't want you to do that, and you choose to disobey and disregard them, why is that so wrong? Number one, because the Bible says children obey your parents, but number two and deeper yet is you refuse to regard them as trustworthy. Why does it hurt mom and dad? Because their trustworthiness has been called into account, and we do the same thing with God. And so he says this unbelieving attitude toward God renders a great injury to other people for it reinforces their inclination to trust in themselves rather than in God. And so this is where I get real, real, uh, real cheeky, right? When I choose to sin, I not only refuse to trust God, I empower others to not trust God as well. I show my friends, I show my family, I show the world, it's cool, baby, to not trust God. And what does that do? It empowers them to do the same thing. So it's a, it's a double whammy. I sin against God, I sin against my neighbor as well. And then the writer concludes, and this is a, a doozy, he says the enormity of people's total depravity consists in both treating God in the worst possible way and deterring others from knowing the unsurpassed blessing of having him work for them and to do them good with his whole heart and soul. 
The enormity enormity of such a crime therefore requires punishment. Having a corresponding severity, we therefore should conclude that it is just and right, and I would argue righteous, for God to consign the impenitent, that is the unbelieving, the unrepentant, to an eternity in hell. And so this is our deadly nemesis. We have all sinned and we have all fallen short of God's glory. But, aren't you glad for that word but? But we can thank Almighty God that this story doesn't end in verse 23. Read verse 24 with me. And, that's a great word as well. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I want to turn now from the greatest barricade and close with the greatest gift. And I want to give you the greatest gift in advance. The greatest gift is the gift of justification. And I want to subject this greatest gift of justification to four important questions. And here is where we'll spend the bulk of our time. Number one, and very basically, why do we need to be justified? We need to be justified, simply put, because we are sinners and have fallen short of the glory of God. That's precisely, precisely what we learned in verse 23. May I say this? There is nothing in any of us that commends us to God. There is nothing in any of us that commends us to God. We are depraved. We are lost. We live in a hopeless condition. We stand in desperate need of justification. This is the foundation. Look at question number two. What is justification then? What is justification? The simple definition is this. Justification means to set right. It means to vindicate. We need to be vindicated as sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God. But here is the root definition. It comes from the Greek word uh, dikaio, which means to declare righteous. To declare righteous. R.C. Sproul says it like this. Justification may be defined as that act by which unjust sinners are made right or righteous in the sight of a just and a holy God. One writer articulates it this way. To be justified means to be declared right with God by virtue of the remission of sins accomplished by Jesus Christ's righteousness is imputed to the believer and the believer's sins are imputed to Christ who bears them in his body on the tree. Justification is from beginning to end a divine action based on the mercy of God the Father and the work of Jesus Christ the Son. Amen? This is justification, but I want to have you look at number two. And we're going to zero in on this by having you understand that justification now is a declaration. Justification is a declaration. When God justifies a sinner, he declares that that sinner is righteous. It's something like this. 
I, got, I brought this gavel out a couple of months ago, and I'll never forget someone that came to me. And I think I wrapped the gavel about four times in that sermon. The first time was the funnest, right? All right so brace yourselves. It's coming again. And this woman shared with me that her grandson said, Grandma, why does he keep doing that? My response was, listen to the sermon, young man, right? What happens when we're justified? Is everyone ready? I didn't, I didn't prepare anyone a few months ago. Everyone's ready now. If, you're a, if someone's asleep next to you, just look at them right now. Ready? When God slams the gavel, he declares you are vindicated. You are righteous. Now, here is what is critical, and I have found that this is a profound misunderstanding across a a, a vast arena of evangelicalism. Here's the misunderstanding. Evangelicals tend to think this, because I am justified, I am righteous. Let me start with me. I am not righteous. You should have seen me behind the slow lady at Walmart yesterday. I didn't say anything. I didn't roll my eyes. I didn't do anything. I was very patient. But on the inside, I'm going, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. And the Lord's saying, seriously, long suffering, patience, right? I'll be the first to admit, I'm not righteous. Are there any other people who are not righteous? You understand this doctrine, I think, by now. Is the doctrine of justification does not mean that I am now righteous. It means that I have been declared righteous. There's a big difference. God the Father sees you and I, if you are in Christ, through the completed work of Christ on the cross, and he declares us righteous. We have a new status with God. Martin Lloyd-Jones says justification, and this will help you, justification makes no actual change in us. That almost sounds like heresy, but it's not. Justification makes no actual change in us. Rather, it is a declaration of God concerning us. Justification is a declaration. Number three, justification is, and if I think Randy's helping in the back, he'll love Randy. If you can hear me out there, justification is forensic. Justification is forensic. This is a legal term. This is a a term, just thank you, brother. This is a term that is derived from the courtroom. It is a forensic term, a legal term. It is a judicial proclamation that gives sinners the status of right standing with God. And here's the beautiful thing. When we are justified and we receive right standing with God, our sins, past, present, and future are wiped clean. Separated as far as the east is from the west. Hidden behind God's back. He forgets our sins. Separated as far as the east is from the west. Justification is forensic. A word derived from the courtroom. Hold that in the back of your mind because we're going to look at another beautiful word that 
corresponds to the word justification from the courtroom, but it's a word that comes in another arena altogether. Number four, please see that justification is a free act of God. It's a free act of God. That is to say that justification is in no way dependent upon sinners. I don't have any works. You don't have any works. I don't have any merits. You don't have any merits. I don't have any disposition for God. You don't have any disposition for God as a sinner. The work of justification is a, a, a work that is entirely of God. And the only way that God can declare a person to be righteous in his sight, we will see, is because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, who stood in our place as the substitution, substitutionary atonement for our sins. Number five. Number five will be a big one if you have either a Roman Catholic background or you are currently a Roman Catholic. And number five is this. Justification is instantaneous. It's instantaneous. And for my Roman Catholic friends, it is not a process. For hundreds and hundreds of years, Rome has taught that justification or to receive justifying grace is a process. And so as a result, all the Roman Catholic friends that I've had over the years, they never know if they're saved. They never know if they have have worked hard enough. They never know if they went to confession enough. They never know if they confessed their sins enough. Why? Because justification, which according to Rome, begins at the baptismal fount. Justification does not begin at the baptismal fount. Justification, according to Romans 5 verse 1, begins when the sinner believes. Not when the child is baptized. And so justification is instantaneous. It's not a process. The moment a sinner places his or her faith in Jesus and turns from their sin, that person is justified. That person is declared righteous by a holy God. Number six, justification is a once-for-all action on the part of God. It is James White who said, One who is justified cannot become unjustified, for all of the believer's sins have been forgiven on the basis of the work of Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to think of these six principles that we've looked at to help describe justification. And I want to subject these six principles to an illustration, and it is, to say it mildly, an earthy illustration. For those of you that are wondering what earthy is, That's a little bit on the crude side, right? And it's an illustration by Martin Luther. He had his way of of crudely presenting gospel reality. It's both shocking and it's also helpful. This illustration comes from the rural farms of Germany where he was raised. Farmers needing a way to fertilize their fields would collect... You don't know how long I tried to figure out what word I should use... Refuse? Ah, you know what I'm talking about, but some of you don't. I can tell by the looks on some of your face. Farmers would collect their refuse or uh, excrement. And I was like, I was like, Dave, think more and more. Some people won't know what excrement is. Um, so what would be a Christian word? Doo-doo? That's the word that just popped out. I can say doo-doo and not get in trouble. So farmers would compile their doo-doo from the farm animals, and they'd put the doo-doo in piles. I think Luther missed it. He should have said doo-doo, not refuse. 
But he'd ha- the, the farmers would have these big piles of doo-doo. And these dung hills, these doo-doo hills, would at times dot the landscape all over Germany. People would see it. And it wasn't attractive. Worse than not being attractive, it didn't smell very good. When my family moved to Whatcom County, I remember riding my bike. <laughs> and I thought to myself, man, either, either uh, people in Whatcom County don't shower or the farmers are doing something with the doo-doo. And I learned that it was the latter. I think it's the latter. And so here's what Luther did. If you can imagine these, these piles of doo-doo on the fields, he likened our sinful condition to the dunghill. He said, this is what Dave Steele is like. He's like a pile of dung, ugly and offensive. He doesn't have anything that will commend himself to God. And this is what I was like before I was a Christian, and this is what you were like before you were a Christian. And if you're not a Christian, this is what you look like and smell like now. There is nothing that would recommend us to God, nothing that is acceptable, nothing that merits his blessing. We are foul and repulsive in our sin. I warned you, it was an earthy illustration. This is what we smell like to God, and this is what we smell like to the watching world. Now, here's where it gets good. Justification, according to Luther, is like that first snowfall of the approaching winter. The one that covers everything in a blanket of pure white, which, Ken, you're hoping we get sooner than later. Unlike Later snowfalls, snowfalls where man is shoveled and plowed and otherwise worked to clear a path for himself. That first snowfall is beautiful. I don't care if you're here and you think snow is the worst thing in the world. You have to acknowledge that when the snow falls, it is beautiful. And that's Luther's point. Everything is covered in the same blanket of, blanket of snow. Even, as Luther points out, those piles of doo-doo. What was once foul is no longer. The smell is gone. The repulsive sight is gone. All is white and pure and clean. Here's the key. In justification, we are imputed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, a blanket of righteousness, as it were, that covers our sin in the sight of the Father. And here is what is important that we remember. The dunghill still exists. It's internally a dunghill. That hasn't changed. What has changed, as Luther says, is its relationship to the external standard, God's standard. That first snowfall, the righteousness of Christ, is what Luther called an alien righteousness. It's the righteousness of another. It's the righteousness of Jesus It's imputed to us. It covers us. It removes our offensiveness from God the Father. We remain sinners inwardly. And it is the work of sanctification that changes us eternally and conforms us to the image of Christ. This is why the reformers would say this about every justified person. We are simul justus et peccator. In English, we are simultaneously righteous and sinful. I read a book 
over 20 years ago, a popular Christian writer, and he says, the biggest lie in the Christian church is that we are sinners saved by grace. And I would turn that on its head and say, that's the biggest lie I've ever heard in a Christian book. We are simuluses that peccator. We are simultaneously righteous and sinful. Move now to the third question. How can we receive now this justification, this right standing with God? And verse 24 helps us to understand that we are justified by his grace as a gift. There's the answer. We are justified by grace as a gift. That word grace means the kindness or the goodwill or the favor of God. I love what Lloyd-Jones says. He says, quote, there is no more wonderful word than grace, unquote. Amen? We need grace. We who are hopeless and lost and wretched and filled with sin to the very core, we need grace. Ephesians 2, 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift from God. And so grace, which is always undeserved, is by definition a gift The only way we receive justification is by grace as a gift. And as we've learned time and time again, the only way to receive it is by faith and faith alone. If you are a Christian, are you not thankful for the gift of salvation this morning? So we talk about digging deeper, growing stronger. Did you know that you can never plunge the depths of this doctrinal reality of justification? You just get deeper and deeper and deeper. I don't care if you're 90 years old, you're going to continue to learn more and more and more about justifying grace. For those of you who are not yet Christians, I would ask you this. What is preventing you from receiving the free gift of salvation. I, I shared a story this morning at Veritas about my lovely bride. It was on April the 1st. I want to say 32 years ago this April. I think it's 32 years. She was at Chuck E. Cheese with the youth, youth pastor of the church she was attending as a non-believer. And Pastor Dave Walter shared the gospel with her again and said, Dreen, is there any reason why you would not believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and with all the noise around her at Chuck E. Cheese, you know, can, it's just a great place to become a Christian. She said, no, I, I can't think of any reason why I wouldn't give my heart to Jesus. And she prayed right there at Chuck E. Cheese to receive Christ. A couple years before I even knew she existed, and then we were married. Isn't God good? What's holding you back this morning from turning from your sin and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ? There's a final question I want you to wrestle with, and that is, on what basis can we be justified? And it's also found in verse 24. Paul says that we're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I simply put, the basis of our justification is the redeeming work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That word redemption means deliverance or, or ransom. You remember I had you kind of catalog that word justification, which I said is a word that comes from the, see if anyone was listening, 
It's a legal word. It's a word that is derived from the courtroom where redemption is not a legal word. It's a word that comes from the marketplace. So when slaves in the Old Testament were set free, they were said to be redeemed. When Israel was set free from her captivity, she was said to be altogether redeemed. Jesus Christ redeemed us. He bought us out of the slave market of sin, shedding his blood as a ransom price. Or as Mark 10 says, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. He, or God the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Ephesians 1, 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. That is, in Jesus we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. My friends, Jesus Christ is the only one qualified to pay the price, to pay the ransom price in order to redeem sinners. I want to have you look at this final chart and trust that all this will make sense for you. Let's look at this final diagram. We've learned that our greatest need is the righteousness of God. We've also learned that the greatest barricade is that we are sinners. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. And that the greatest gift is the gift of justification. And all of these find their terminus or the answer in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. On what basis do we receive the righteousness of God? We receive the righteousness of God as a gracious gift in the gospel indeed i think you will agree this is the greatest and most gracious gift we could ever receive when you understand the basis for receiving the righteousness of god it will begin to have a a powerful effect on the way you live your life you will remember that god has accomplished in christ what you don't deserve i was at the hospital a few days ago i met a a lady in the elevator she says how you doing what do you think i said to her Better than I deserve. And she looked at me like, he must be one of the patients. (laughs) God has accomplished in Christ what you could never earn. God has accomplished in Christ what you need the most. Your greatest need is the righteousness of Christ, which has been freely given to everyone who believes. And so the question I leave you with today is, have you believed? Have you turned from your sin? Have you turned to the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you received the most gracious and the greatest gift in all of human history? For followers of Jesus, are you living in light of the great reality of who you are in Christ? You are not a righteous person inwardly, but God declares you to be righteous. Can you believe that? I don't understand it. I don't get it. But I trust in what God has said about his people. Does the watching world realize that you have received the gracious gift? Does the watching world realize that you have received the greatest gift in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for helping us to see the the importance of this gracious, great gift.
Lord Jesus, uh, we exalt you. We worship you. Thank you for the opportunity to sing to you and about you as we will continue to do in a moment. As we conclude with these songs, I pray that our hearts would uh, be prepared to, uh, to cry out to you, to receive grace from you. Lord, if changes need to take place, may those changes be taking place beginning today. May the work of transformation as a result of the Holy Spirit's ministry in our life begin right now. For those who have, who have yet to become Christians, may today be the day of salvation. May the gospel uh, lodge in their hearts and may someone who walked in today unbelieving leave this place today filled with joy, knowing that they have been declared righteous in the sight of a holy God, vindicated, set free, forgiven of all their sins, past, present, and future. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.